Magnus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I did last night was rewatch X-Men Dark Phoenix. I saw it one time in theaters, not very long after it opened, and even released an episode about it many, many, many months ago, like six months ago, something like that. Released an episode about it that I think maybe the best summary for uh, for that episode is I don't get it. You know what I mean? I just don't understand where the opposition to this movie is coming from. And honestly, it's not like this is the first time. There are a lot of uh, movies out there, comic book movies or not, that for some reason it's like the fucking claws were out for those things. And I, I just don't get it. I, I don't really see what the, what the problem is. Not always, but sometimes. You know, maybe a good example is Spider-Man 3. I don't think Spider-Man 3 is as hated as Dark Phoenix. But especially in its day, Spider-Man 3 didn't impress very many people. And yet, I just don't really see the problem with Spider-Man 3. And God knows I don't see too much of a problem with... X-Men Dark Phoenix, and so... I'm sure I had a point, I just don't know. Well, whatever. Anyway, so maybe the best summary for that episode is I just don't get it. I don't understand why it is that people hated Dark Phoenix so much. Because, I, like I say, I went to see it in, in theaters, and I kept waiting for the shitty part, and it's like the shitty part never came. You understand? So I thought, well, maybe this is one of those things that... I need to get some distance in order to, to really understand. You know, maybe what I need to do is just take a step back, give it some time, and let's just take another look at this thing. I did, and here again, I just don't get it, all right? Like I say, rewatched the movie last night, and I... the the badness of this movie is just escaping me, okay? There's... Evidently, I'm seeing something in this movie that everybody else isn't, or everybody else is seeing something in this movie that I'm not. But whatever is happening is happening, and I just don't get it. So, my memory, because I didn't re-listen to my I Just Don't Get It episode uh, about Dark Phoenix the first time I watched it. I, maybe I should have re-listened to it, I don't know, but I didn't re-listen to it. So I don't actually know if I went through the Wikipedia summary of the, uh, of the movie or not when I, when I recorded that episode. But I'm gonna maybe not go through the Wikipedia summary, you know, line by line and comment on it. But I do want to go through the Wikipedia summary and just comment on things as they jump out at me. So, I guess going from the top here, it says, In 1975, eight-year-old Jean Grey and her parents get into a car accident that kills her mother. Shortly afterwards, Professor Charles Xavier takes her to Xavier's school for gifted youngsters. I'm going to put the Wikipedia summary on pause here and say that uh, it's not really apparent in the Wikipedia summary, but this is actually a... This is actually a, 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 a pretty cheese-covered nacho that was just set up in, we'll say, maybe the first five or so minutes of this film that the summary just doesn't really do justice to, right? Specifically that Xavier, he basically lied to little Jean Grey and told her that both of her parents are dead. And one of the key elements of the movie is we find out, no, her father is still alive and specifically did not want her, not after what happened. He blamed her, rightly or wrongly, some would say kind of rightly, for the death of her mother, and so as a result, he wanted her out of his life. And so poor Xavier is kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. How do you tell a little girl who has just lost her mother that her father now wants nothing to do with her? On the other hand, is it ever right to lie to somebody, especially somebody that young, but is it ever right to lie to somebody and say, hey, both of your parents are dead when one of them is still alive? It's like, 
Xavier's kind of put in a no-win situation here. It's like no matter what he does, he's going to risk not just harming Jean, but inflicting further harm. Because lest we forget, she's already lost her mother. I mean, that's, that's non-negotiable. That's on the table, and we already know this. So... You are you risk compound no matter what what direction you go in you risk compounding the trauma that's been inflicted upon her no matter what you do you can either scar her now by telling her her father is alive and wants nothing to do with her or you can scar her later by telling her that both of her parents are dead and then eventually she's going to find out the truth anyway and then discover that her father wanted nothing to do with her it's like the keeping the truth utterly secret that's not on the table guys okay that is not an option here there's no version of this that ends with Jean Grey living her entire life and never finding out that her father basically disowned her so you early on you can kind of you can kind of understand that well, not early on, you don't understand that Xavier's in a difficult position. It's only later that you find out, no, he really was in a difficult position, and he did what he thought was the right thing to do. Now, one of the criticisms that I've heard leveled against Dark Phoenix as a film is that this is really, in a certain kind of way, it's not so much that this is Xavier's story, so much as this being Gene's story so heavily involves Xavier. Now, there are any number of different reasons why that might be. I mean, one of them might be that in a in a kind of big way, I would say that this first-class franchise really was Xavier's franchise. I mean, yes, he... he this These are ensemble pieces. I mean, let, lest we forget, this is an X-Men movie that we're talking about here. But so much of what happens in these films, beginning with First Class and then running right on through, literally to the very end of this movie, Dark Phoenix, involves Xavier in some way or another. That's not a good thing, and that's not a bad thing. It's simply a true thing. Now, guys, it's been forever since I read the Dark Phoenix saga comic book, or series of comics, the storyline, but my memory of it is those comics were very much Gene and Scott's story. Yes, other characters were involved, and yes, other characters were affected, but at the end of the day, it really was their story. Whereas, yes, this is... Dark Phoenix is Gene's story, but it's it's sort of... Maybe one way of putting it is this is how Gene's story affects Xavier. Does that make sense? And like I say, that's one of the few criticisms I've heard leveled against the movie that for it being Gene's story, it sure does depend an awful lot on Xavier. And this is one of those things that, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and acknowledge there is some validity to it. Now, having said that, the director of this movie, Simon Kinberg, he obviously wanted to adapt or readapt, really, Dark Phoenix or the Phoenix story, the Phoenix saga, fucking whatever you want to call it. That was clearly what what he wanted to do. And the fact is, a, a style had been set up in the previous films where maybe it's Xavier's story and maybe it's not, but nevertheless, he plays central and pivotal roles in every single one of those movies, even if he takes a little bit more of a backseat to things. Because I don't think Days of Future Past is necessarily... Again, not Xavier's story. It's really Wolverine's story in a lot of ways. But it's still Wolverine's story and how Wolverine's story impacts on Xavier, right? And so a style had been set up in in these movies. And I don't think Kinberg would have necessarily been honest with the material and honest with what had come before if he doesn't continue that. Right. The other thing is, Jean was, I would say, a little bit more of a supporting character. Scott was definitely more of a supporting character in Apocalypse. And so audiences, I don't think, would have necessarily had 
a full investment in the first class versions of Scott and Jean, such that they could have carried the full dramatic weight of Dark Phoenix. I can't say by themselves, but primarily carried the dramatic weight. You know, you still needed, not just from a sense of style at this point, but a sense of audience participation, you still needed Xavier to sort of be in the thick of things and perhaps shouldering more of the uh, of the story than was absolutely necessary. So I'm not trying to to critique this. I'm simply saying that this is one of the few areas where I think the the critics and the haters and the naysayers, they do kind of have a point. They sort of have a leg to stand on when they say that this is Dark Phoenix is basically a story about characters primarily that are strangers somewhat to the audience and disproportionately includes Xavier and to a lesser degree Magneto. And so I'm not offering that criticism myself, and I'm certainly not agreeing with that criticism. I'm just saying I understand that criticism. So anyways, moving right along, the summary goes on to say, In 1992, the X-Men respond to a distress signal from the space shuttle Endeavor, which is critically damaged by a solar flare-like energy during the STS-49 mission. While they save the astronauts, Jean is stranded and struck by the energy which she absorbs into her body to save her team's aircraft from the destruction. And I'm going to put the summary back on pause here and say this is another, this sort of ties in with another criticism that, again, I don't, I don't know if I fully buy into, but I think I, I think this criticism has a little bit more cred to it in as much as in Apocalypse, we saw Jean seemingly exhibit the Phoenix Force. She sort of demonstrates it. You know, that was sort of the turning point in the movie. Because up to that point, Apocalypse was basically kicking everybody's ass, and there was really no way to save the world until Jean came along and began unlocking her full potential, which, in so doing, she unlocked the Phoenix Force. And so... I guess what I'm saying is Apocalypse showed that this is, by whatever force, this is something that, this is a force that Gene already had access to back in the 80s. And yet here in the 90s, we seem to be watching her acquire this force for the very first time. And so there is a kind of strange bit of discontinuity going on there. And, you know, what the hell is that all about? And I don't have a really good explanation for this. I mean, I guess you could maybe no-prize it by saying that Jean was born with the Phoenix Force. And the energy cascade that we see in outer space, which, let's underline this, that, that is never called the Phoenix Force, basically accentuated the, the Phoenix in, in, inside of Jean. It basically helped her unlock her full potential before she was ready. And so... I don't know, like, do you buy that? Do you not buy that? I don't know. It's not really made clear in the movie, though. This I do affirm. And so I do think it's I do think it's a little bit more fair game to say that there's there's some discontinuity between Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix, that Dark Phoenix makes no real effort to clear up, at least that I'm able to to recognize. So here again, we we're, we're touching upon uh, a, a criticism that I understand and to a limited degree can even kind of relate to, but it, guys, we still need to emphasize, I just don't get it. I mean, the two criticisms of this movie that I've raised so far, I guess I, again, I guess I can see where that might be a problem. Th those two things might be a problem for some people. I understand that, but at the same time, there are worse flaws in beloved classics out there that nobody thinks twice about. And for some reason, you know, these movies that everyone loves, they've got a lot more than than two minor debatable flaws going for them, which doesn't seem to have hurt their reception, at least among fans and critics. So I just don't 
get it. So, moving right along with the summary, she, meaning Jean, she survives the event and her psychic powers are greatly amplified as a result, but they become uncontrollable and she accidentally unleashes her power on mutants celebrating the victory at Xavier's school. I'm going to put this summary on pause, not so much to comment on that stuff, so much as to say we're kind of glossing over some stuff here. There's basically a, a, a conflict brewing between Xavier and Raven, right? And Raven's point is that, look, you're risking our lives a lot. You know, you're risking the lives at the X, uh, of the X-Men a lot on these rescue missions for humans. We're taking not only a lot of risks, we're taking bigger and bigger risks as we do it. And for what? I mean, what if we get killed? What if, what if somebody on the team dies? What happens then? And Xavier's response to that is, yes, I'm willing to risk the lives of the X-Men sacrifice their lives even because right now mankind they're all cheering for us and the implication here is that xavier remembers when mankind wasn't cheering for mutants they were calling for mutant blood and i think we can infer that Not, there's a little bit of a plot point here that I'm at least extrapolating from Days of Future Past, where future Xavier has that sort of mental encounter with adult Xavier, and he sees the desperate circumstances that they're living under. But I would say probably even more than that, young Xavier, first-class Xavier, you know, the McAvoy Xavier is, he, he, he did more than just meet, in a sense, his future self. He, I think in a, the, the sort of mind meld that he had with his future, with his future self, uh, it basically allowed him to experience some or all, perhaps, of what adult Xavier Patrick Stewart's Xavier had lived through up to that point. Uh, the victories, the losses, the setbacks, the advancements, the war, the casualties, the death, the destruction. He had something more than a passing familiarity with all those things. He knew exactly what was at stake. And so as a result, he knew exactly how good the X-Men had it with their enfranchisement with the president of the United States. He knew how good things were. He knew how bad things could easily become. And if keeping, if staying in mankind's good books meant risking, or for that matter, even sacrificing the uh, lives of the team, those are sacrifices that Xavier was willing to make. And I can't help thinking that, look, no small part of that is down to Xavier... Look, he risked his own ass on many occasions previously. And uh, there was the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, there, uh, you know, basically the conflict on the beach in first class. There was uh, basically everything that McAvoy did in Days of Future Past. He was risking his life. He was risking his life again in Apocalypse. And I guess the issue is McAvoy... or. I should say, McAvoy's Xavier, he's not asking any anything of the team that he hasn't been willing to do himself. And he never comes right out and, uh, to say that, but it's like at the same time, if you have anything more than a passing familiarity with the movies that have gone on up to this point, I mean, what, what in the space shuttle rescue, what exactly did Xavier, what risk did he expose the X-Men uh, to? that in some way or another, he hasn't taken himself at, a, a, in some previous film. And I'm at a loss to think of anything, guys. He's risked injury, he's risked death, he's risked imprisonment, he's risked everything. And he's basically asking the new generation of mutants to make those same sacrifices, to take those same risks. Because, look, motherfucker, I took those risks... And yeah, there were losses along the way, but look what we have now as a result. And, and so, 
it, on the one hand, you know, it seems kind of selfish of Xavier to to risk the team's safety like that. But it's like at the same time, you know, you think about how things really went in the previous films. And I got to tell you, I think I can understand, not necessarily agree with, but I can kind of understand where Xavier's coming from here. And then on the other side of the coin, you've got you've got Raven and she can say whatever she wants to the contrary. Uh, things can get swept under the rug. Uh, water can go under the bridge, but it's at the end of the day, she's always been on Magneto's team. All right. That's her worldview. All right. That's her starting point. Now, I think by the time we catch up with her in Dark Phoenix, I think it's fair to say that that Mystique has, she's tried to find a middle ground somewhere between Magneto's original starting point of let's kill them all and take over for ourselves and Xavier on the other side wanting to go a bit more of a integrationist sort of sort of route she's trying to find a middle ground where she's like okay I can live side by side with these assholes even though at one point they wanted to fucking experiment on me I can live side by side with these people but I don't think their blood is worth more than mine. I don't think their lives are more valuable than mine. And I for damn sure don't really feel comfortable risking the team's safety to save them when, let's face it, they're the ones risking their own lives. Space, guys, is a pretty fucked up place in any comic book continuity. And you're kind of taking a lot of assumed known risks in going into outer space nobody forced this space mission they went up there on their own uh, of their own free will they knew the risks and they went up there anyway why do we have to risk our lives to to bail them out of their own fuck up and you can kind of see mystique's point of view on this too and i guess what i'm saying is the the conflict between the two for me is successful now if somebody wanted to say that the movie doesn't explore that as fully as it could have because you've really got that one scene in xavier's office and then that's pretty much it after that they basically for the most part they kind of table their differences it flares up in small ways here and there but Generally speaking, I mean, that one little bit in Xavier's office, that's really all you get in terms of this worldview conflict between Mystique and Xavier. And again, I don't see that as a good thing. I don't see that as a bad thing. I just kind of see that as a true thing. It simply is. And I don't know. I think it's good writing. And honestly, if I was writing this movie, that's a subplot that I don't think would have occurred to me. Because when you write a movie, you need to get as much conflict out of the script as you possibly can. Because conflict is the lifeblood of drama. And so you want drama. Well, a conventional writing point of view is to find conflict between these characters and then exploit that. And to do so in a believable way. And in this case, let's face it, I think Mystique has always been a little bit more on the Magneto side of the equation, just as we've seen her in these films. I mean, the comics, so, I mean, that's sort of its own thing. But just going by what we see in this film, I think it's fair to say that, that Raven has always identified a little bit more with Eric than, it, than she has with Charles, at least as far as how mutants ought to live. And I do find it kind of interesting that... Well, I, you know what? Maybe we should talk more about the Charles and Eric dynamic a little bit later. But anyway, the point is, I like I like that scene between uh, Charles and Raven in, in his office where they both explain where exactly they're coming from. You know, first class, one of the crucial moments of that film is Charles acknowledging and accepting the fact that Raven may be his adoptive sister, but at the end of the day, she identifies more with Eric's cause than she does Charles's own. 
And it's a really powerful moment in that movie. I seriously dig it. And I like the fact that we're sort of seeing the maturation of that, where Raven herself has grown in office and she's found a middle ground between those two extremes. And so I think it's good writing, you know, and it's also good acting. It's just a well-acted scene and I'm rambling. So I'm going to get back into the summary to say, Xavier had placed mental walls in Jean's mind as a girl to protect her psychic mind from experiencing trauma. These are destroyed by Jean's enhanced power, and the trauma slowly returns, resulting in her being full of rage and pain. She, I'm going to put the summary back on pause just to quickly say, again, I can kind of see where the naysayers are coming from when they say that this, all of this business with Jean, it would play better if there had been at least one movie to give the viewer a chance to invest himself in Jean. Because again, she plays a pivotal role in Apocalypse, but she's still a supporting character. She hadn't she hadn't really had a chance to ingratiate herself to audiences fully. So again, I can kind of see that argument here. But anyway, moving right along. Uh, but these are... Uh, yeah, she travels to her childhood hometown after finding out that her father is still alive and learns that he... Uh, that he abandoned her. Jean recovers her complete memory of the car accident and remembers that she had inadvertently caused it, rendering her mother unconscious at the wheel with her telepathy, which causes her to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. The X-Men arrive and attempt to take Jean home, but she injures Quicksilver and accidentally kills Mystique before fleeing. I'm going to put the summary on pause and say, you know, in all of this, I think I've kind of forgotten about Quicksilver, but honestly, after that little bit outside of... Gene's uh, home. I don't think we see Quicksilver again in the whole movie. I I didn't even think to keep track of it, but I think all in all, I, I think he's got a smaller role in Dark Phoenix than he had even in Days of Future Past, which is saying quite a lot, actually. Now, the instant I say that, I do want to emphasize the fact that It's known, okay? It's not exactly a state secret to say that Dark Phoenix underwent a shit ton of reshoots. Uh, apparently, there was there 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 was the initial uh, principal photography, and then reshoots upon reshoots upon reshoots upon reshoots. I mean, the rumor mill really was working overtime on that. Now, how much of that was true, and how much of that wasn't, I don't know. What I do know is that I think even Simon Kinberg himself has said that, yeah, there were a shit ton of reshoots. That's there's there's some smoke there, but there's also some fire, too. And so I guess what I'm what I'm driving at here is that it is possible that Quicksilver originally had a much larger role in the film and it just got gradually cut down and down and down and down to the point where I think all in all, I think he only appears in like four or five scenes. And I think that's about it. And in a, a movie that has like, I think in excess of like 80 or 90 or a hundred scenes or something like that, that's, that's a, that, that's a lot, you know? So anyways, moving right along, the summary goes on to say, uh, Jean travels to the mutant refugee island of Genosha to seek assistance from Magneto in controlling her rage, but is turned away after she engages in combat with United States military uh, uh, forces tasked with her arrest. Jean meets Vuck, the leader of a shape-shifting alien race known as the Dabari, who explained to her that she that she's been possessed by a force of cosmic power which wiped out the Dabari home planet long ago. The power consumed all those it came, uh, it came into contact with until it was drawn to Jean. Meanwhile, Hank McCoy, mad with grief over Raven's death, uh, uh, allies with Eric and the mutant refugees in an, in an attempt to kill Jean in New York City. Upon learning of Eric's plan, uh, the X-Men try to stop him and his faction of mutants. As they battle, Eric manages to enter the building and, and confront Jean, only to fall to her amplified powers. Xavier then enters the building with Nightcrawler. 
Jean attacks them until Xavier convinces her to read his memories, allowing her personality to resurface. Feeling remorseful, Jean offers to let uh, Vuck take the Force from her. However, it's revealed that doing so would kill Jean, as well as revealing that Vuck also intends to use the Force to conquer Earth. Xavier and Scott are able to prevent Vuck from fully absorbing the Force from Jean, though Jean loses consciousness from the ordeal. Troops sent by the U.S. government, or rather, troops sent by the U.S. government, who use stun weapons and power-inhibiting collars, attack and subdue both uh, both mutant factions who were placed on a train aboard a, a uh, headed towards a containment facility. I'm going to put this back on pause and say, you know, this is one of those times when I, I got to believe that. Well, honestly, it's it's kind of up for grabs. Uh, a little bit here, the the mutants are on their both factions of mutants are basically they're they're getting sent to internment camps and. Y- it, it's sort of open to debate. Whose argument does that validate? Mystique's? Eric's? Xavier's? Whose point of view? I mean, all of these characters... Well, obviously not so much Mystique because she's, you know, dead and shit. But whose point is getting validated here? as all of these characters are placed on the train, you know where they're going, and you know they're probably never going to see daylight again. Who's right? Was Mystique right in the warnings that she was giving? See, these assholes aren't worth sacrificing our lives for because they're ready to turn on us right fucking now. Was Xavier right to say, hey, we need to to get in their good books as quick as we can because I've seen how ugly the future can get if we don't make some kind of peace with these people, trust me, it's worth sacrificing a few of our own in order to save the peace. Well, they're not in the in mankind's good books anymore, and so here they are, getting shipped off to internment camps. Was Eric right? He wanted to wipe all these assholes out 30 years ago. And if they had, who's to say that things might not have turned out better, at least for the mutants? Who is being validated here? It's all in how you look at it. And honestly, for me, this is one of the things that I kind of appreciate about X-Men. Because, look, guys, I'm not trying to speak ill of the dead or anything. But, you know, for a long time, years, in fact, decades even, Stan Lee made a lot of noise about how the X-Men are... They're basically metaphors of various and sundry disenfranchised groups, particularly in America. And I've always had a really hard time believing that. I mean, I don't think I've ever really bought that. Certainly that's the metaphor that's been imposed upon them in the uh, ensuing decades. But I have a really hard time completely buying into the idea that that's what Stan Lee intended when he first created these characters. I... I just don't know if I believe them, you know? But one of the things that I do think is undeniable is that there are some very complex moral lines that are drawn in X-Men, all right? And just to kind of, I don't know, draw a comparison, I suppose, especially in the Silver Age, There were very key, very crucial, very important differences between Superman and Lex Luthor. There were huge differences between Batman and the Joker. The heroes are defined, this is my point, those heroes are defined by their heroism, whereas the villains are defined by their villainy. That's who they are in in all cases. That's who they are. That's what defines them. That's what motivates them. And that's what drives and enforces their their moral worldviews. And I don't think that's really true of X-Men, certainly not to start with, but definitely uh, as time went on. The morality of the X-Men corner of the universe has always been very gray. You know, it's, it's, it really is open to debate who's right and who's wrong, because it's not a question of good and evil. In, in in the X-Men comics. We're, look, we're past that. It, it's really a question of black and white, you know? 
it's, I guess, factually correct versus factually incorrect. It's not a question of good and evil. It's really, I guess, a matter of right and wrong, you know? And the, the lines can move, you know, they are not, they're not immutable. There are instances when Magneto, the bad guy, can do something heroic because he's not defined by his villainy. He's defined by, I guess in a certain sense, he's defined by his philosophy, his ideology. That's what he believes in. So I don't think... I. Magneto is not exactly Voldemort, is the point. And honestly, for that matter, I don't think that Charles Xavier is Harry Potter. To me, one of the crucial elements that honestly doesn't really get talked about a whole lot, but one of the key elements that I think goes into uh, Professor X's moral universe is the fact that he he doesn't... I don't think he necessarily believes that Magneto is completely wrong. When Magneto says, look, given a chance, these motherfuckers are going to kill us, all right? We've got to strike first, and we've got to establish a position of strength. We've got to move in and take the fuck over. I think there's a limit to which Professor X will actually say, you know what? Dude's right. You know, that is absolutely who those people are. But he's wrong about who, about what we need to do. He's right about what they're willing to do. He's wrong about what we need to do. We need to win the argument. We need to prove to them that we're not a threat. We need to prove to them that we can all live together. We need to prove to them that we're not a threat to them. All right? We're not out to hurt them. They're driven by fear. And we need to prove that they have nothing to fear from us. And it's again, it's not that one of them is... is uh, the good guy, and and the other guy is he he he's the evil villain. It's I don't really think it it works that way, in X Men. I don't think, at least X Men at their best, I don't think it's that th- that it works that way. And anyway, I guess what I'm trying to say is this is one of those things about the X Men that has that's always really worked for me, frankly. Now, excuse me, well. I get a, a, a drink here because I've been running my mouth now for, what's it been? It's over half an hour at this point, so my throat is getting a little dry, so excuse me. All right, I got a confession, guys. Right now... I'm drinking a bottle of Pib Extra. Now, I know what you're all saying. But Magnus, but Magnus, in the last episodes that you did about the Legion of Superheroes, you were drinking Coke, and it was usually orange vanilla Coke. Why are you changing now? And honestly, the reason for that is, people, we all need some variety in our lives. So, there's mine. Now, since I'm taking a break here, I'm going to get a few drags of vapor off of my box. So, one minute. All right. So anyway, what I'm what I'm saying, guys, is the morality and philosophy that's at play in the X-Men books, at least historically, that's always been very fascinating to me. So anyway, probably enough said there. So moving right along on the train, Xavier admits to Hank that the latter was right in his earlier accusa- uh, accusations of violating Jean's mind. I'm going to put the the synopsis back on pause here and say, I look, it's a big moment, or at least it's played as a big moment in the movie for Charles to admit that he was wrong about something. But guys, he was, look, it was the ultimate catch-22 situation. There is no right answer here. 
If you make, if you take one course of action, bad things are going to ensue. If you take another course of action, bad things are going to ensue. And so we can disagree over whether or not uh, Charles made the least bad choice, but there's really no denying that he didn't have, there was no right choice. That was never on the table. And so for him to say, yes, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. You're, you, you are right, Hank. I should, I should not have done it. And it's, it's, it's no. Uh, so, I mean, this is actually one of the few character moments in the film that, that it's like, it's extremely well-written. It's extremely well-performed. And I just don't buy it. Not completely because basically we're left with a situation where grown-up Xavier was wrong to tell uh, young Jean that both of her parents were dead. So what he should have done is psychologically scar her even further by saying that her daddy didn't want her. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I just don't think that was the right thing to do, you know, at least not necessarily. So anyways... The train is attacked by Vuk and her Dabari forces. When the soldiers are overpowered by the shapeshifters, the mutants are freed from their restraints to combat the threat. The mutants deal with most of the Dabari attackers, but Vuk arrives and, hand, and heads for Jean, defeating each mutant who attempts to stop her. Xavier confers with Jean within his mind, allowing Jean to gain control of her power. After forgiving Xavier, Jean saves the mutants from Vuk's attacks and the ensuing train wreck before proceeding to easily disintegrate uh, the remaining Dabari when, when they attack her. Vuk once again attempts to drain Jean of the Force, but Jean takes Vuk into outer space, retakes the power that Vuk had received earlier, and then kills her. Jean then disappears in a burst of energy in the form of a phoenix. In the aftermath of the incident, Xavier's school is renamed the Jean Grey School for Gifted Youngsters, and Hank becomes their new dean with Xavier having retired. While settling himself in, in uh, settling settling himself in Paris, Xavier is reunited with Eric and agrees to play a game of chess with him. As they start playing, a flaming phoenix appears in the sky. The end. And guys, like I say, I mean there may be some issues with this movie, there may be some things that could have been done better, etc., 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 but Guys, at the end of the day, this movie has no more flaws than a lot of other very highly respected, very much cherished classics that everyone agrees are good. And so I just, I don't understand the, just the hate that this movie got. I mean, because it got some pretty interesting hate and from some pretty interesting sources. All in all, I think this is a good movie. Now, one thing that I... One thing that I, I, I can kind of criticize the movie for is the, the Hans Zimmer score. Because, guys, I'm not, I'm not a, a film score aficionado on the same level as, say, Scott Gardner. I mean, that guy is a fucking expert. And I'm really not on his level. But at the same rate, I do know what I like. And just the complete lack of melody and themes and motifs that we see in or hear in this score. I mean, yeah, there, there are some things, and I'm certainly not criticizing that, but it's just, there's everything that's, basically the music for Dark Phoenix is unique and specific to Dark Phoenix. There's no, there's no carryover, or at least not much carryover, from previous films. And I think ultimately that works, I can't say that it hurts the movie, but it's like at the same time, it doesn't really, I don't think it benefits the movie as fully as bringing back a few of the old classic themes probably would have done. And so, I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, Hans Zimmer, he is very much respected in, in the film world, but I just, I don't know if I completely agree with some of the creative decisions that he made. I think I've listened to this to this uh, Zimmer score for Dark Phoenix. I think I've listened to it once. And then that's it. After that, it was right back to Ottman. Now, I'm not exactly saying that Ottman walks on water or anything, but at least when it comes to the X-Men, I think he got a lot more right than he did wrong. Put it that way. So, anyway. 
So I don't know if that's necessarily everything that I've got to say about Dark Phoenix, but I do think that's pretty much what I've got to say, at least for right now. So now one of the things that I've committed to doing is trying to make a little bit more time for feedback. All right. So in terms of that, uh, the feedback that I want to go through today, we're actually moving. I've, I've still got a, quite a backlog from 2014, 15, 16, and 17, but I want to skip ahead now to 2018. So this is only two or I guess at this point, a year and a half. This is only a year and a half old, but whatever. I mean, I, I still want to I still want to go through this because it does obviously relate in some ways to the subject at hand here. This this email is entitled The X-Men in the MCU. This was sent in by my old friend, uh, Gene Hendricks. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, Gene Hendricks is involved with uh, the, the Hammer Strikes podcast, which you can find at thehammerstrikes.com. He, uh, he's also, um, I don't know if this is a, 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 a joke, because uh, I guess I only just now noticed this, but he also has a, a blog spot called The Hamster Strikes, which you can find at thehamsterstrikes.blogspot.com. Uh, the Hammer Podcasts, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. There's also The Quantum Cast, again, twotruefreaks.com, as well as Anime Freaks, uh, again, twotruefreaks.com. And you can also find uh, his Patreon at patreon.com slash the hammer strikes. So, uh, if, if you want to, uh, contribute any, uh, you know, any fundage over to, to Gene, you can, you can do so at his Patreon again, patreon.com slash the hammer strikes. And, uh, Gene writes, your excellency, you asked for feedback and I'm here to give it to you. Putting the MCU aside, which could be a whole other conversation, once the anti-mutant hysteria became the norm in, in the comics, I never bought that the X-Men worked in the Marvel Universe. Uh, uh, Gene, I'm going to put your email on pause here a bit and say, you know, I've grown a bit in office uh, on this. I do remember saying on mic, even, that... I didn't really understand the X-Men's place in the Marvel Universe in as much as they, they occupy the same general, like, uh, we'll say 10 or 12 mile radius as the Avengers, which includes superhumans uh, in uh, one Norse god, Gene, as you well know, and there's also, independent of the Avengers, you've also got the Fantastic Four. Independent of them, you've got uh, Spider-Man. On and on and on and on, right? And so, this is my point. So, for a long time, I didn't really understand the X-Men's place in the, in, in the Marvel Universe. Why does the world hate and fear them if they're cool with Spider-Man? or they're cool with the Human Torch, or Thor, or just fucking whatever, you know? Why is it that they hate Wolverine in ways that they don't hate? When you think about it, they don't even hate Spider-Man like that. And it was actually Spider-Man specifically that began unlocking this for me. Because you know what? Spider-Man, at least historically, hasn't exactly been Mr. Popularity either. And... What I realized is, you know what, with the Fantastic Four, the public knows who they are, all right? There's accountability there. Yeah, Johnny Storm calls himself the Human Torch, but it's commonly known that the Human Torch is Johnny Storm. He's not hiding anything. He's not even really hiding himself. It, look, if you got a beef with, with Johnny Storm, well, you know where to find the plaza, uh, he's subject to arrest if, if necessary, he's subject to, uh, legal action, et cetera, et cetera, right? He's not hiding. That's the point. Or Thor. Thor's not hiding either. And Thor is in as much as a human can understand a deity People understand Thor. They get him on that level. Uh, it's commonly known that, number one, Tony Stark isn't really a, a superhuman per se. 
But it's it's commonly known that he's Iron Man. All right, people know this. And uh, Captain America, on and on and on, right? Uh, they don't, there are not, this is my point. There are not a whole, when you think about it, there really aren't very many secret identities going on with the Avengers. Not really. The X-Men, on the other hand, and Spider-Man, they, they're not known, you know? It's not necessarily public knowledge who they are or where to find them or or for that matter, uh, I think we could probably even throw in, let's face it, uh, insecurity, all right? Because whether or not there should be a mutant supremacy or not, the fact is the mutants are called mutants because they have to be called something, but they've been, they refer to themselves again and again and again as the next step in human evolution well neanderthal man probably didn't have a whole and i'm drawing an analogy here i don't even know if these species live side by side but just for conversation's sake we could say that neanderthal man probably didn't have a whole lot of love for homo erectus now did he you know and so it would stand to reason that there would be some tension there you know they understand that each group understands that they are competing client groups. They are competing with each other. And there, there's a very strong argument. You know, I mean, maybe homo superior is probably not the best way to refer to mutants. But nevertheless, they're not, <clears throat> they're not homo sapiens in the strictest sense of the word. All right. And I think that kind of works into dark corners of the human imagination brings out anger, fear, and hatred that maybe even Spider-Man doesn't. Because really, Spider-Man is basically a victim of fake news as much as anything. But he's still, it's generally understood, as far as I know, that he's not a mutant. And he's not a Norse god. He's not a billionaire wearing a suit of armor. Um, he's not an astronaut who got exposed to weird, fucked up radiation in outer space. Um, all of those things. But the X-Men are generally understood to be the future, all right? Uh, no matter whether or not they live in, in peace with mankind right now, House of M is coming, baby. Sooner or later, the, the, sooner or later, there's... The, the mutants are going to basically form a majority. And then they're going to be all there is. There will be nothing else. And honestly, that's actually one of the things about the 2099 universe that I've always kind of struggled with. I liked the, the 29 comics, at least that I've read. I think they're very well done in a lot of cases. But one of the problems I have with them is that they never really answered uh, what exactly happens, at least not that I can remember anyways. I don't remember them ever answering goings-on with the mutants. I mean, it's one thing in 1992 when, you know, I was kind of checking into X-Men comics and trying to figure this shit out. You know, it's one thing in 1992 for mutants to be a, hate, a, a hated and hunted and feared minority within the Marvel Universe, but that state of affairs is not going to last forever. And within, at, at God knows, at the very most, a century, the needle is going to move on that. One way or the other. Either the mutants are going to get wiped out, or we're going to see them in a century's time. We're going to see them start gradually taking over and forming a majority in society. And... Again, I could be wrong, but to my recollection, we don't really see that as an issue in the 2099 comics. And Gene, that's got exactly nothing to do with anything that you mentioned, but I just realized it myself, so I just wanted to throw it all out there and see what comes back to me. But my point is, Gene, just to kind of tie it all back, I think I can kind of understand 
better now than I did before where the X-Men fit into the Marvel Universe. Now, to me, you can still argue that they work better in their own sort of immaculate universe where superpowers are a product of uh, mutants and mutants are... They exhibit superpowers and there's nothing else on the table. There are no billionaires and and armor. There are no irradiated uh, uh, outlaws with spider powers. There are no irradiated uh, astronauts uh, that can burst into flames. Uh, There are no Norse gods wandering around town. You know, um, I still think that you can make the argument. This is my point. I still think you can make the argument that the X-Men work better in their own universe But I better understand now where they fit in the Marvel Universe than I did way back when. So, I mean, I don't know, Gene. You tell me. I mean, is this is this progress? I don't know. So I welcome your thoughts on that, to tell you the truth. Anyway, but this is supposed to be about Gene, not me. So getting back into Gene's email, he writes, they should really be off on their own. Once you have people being anti-mutant, but not anti-all-people-with-powers, things get very dicey for me. If there are people out there that hate mutants, why would they like the Fantastic Four, or Giant Man, or even Captain America? And Gene, to put your email back on pause for a minute, I hope I've kind of clarified this for you. Now, Gene, I want you to triple underline this part, okay? I want you to understand what I'm telling you here. I am not second-guessing you. All right, uh, because you have proven to me, if nobody else, but you have proven that you have forgotten infinitely more about Marvel Comics than I'm ever likely to know. So the last thing I would want you to think is that I'm questioning you or I'm second guessing you. All I'm saying is I found a way of resolving those issues to my own satisfaction, you know? Now, if my ideas or if my interpretation doesn't work for you, Gene, you're probably right. I'm just saying I found a way that works for me. So take that for whatever you think it's worth. So anyway, these people, getting back into Gene's email, he writes, these people would see anyone with powers as a mutant uh, to be hated and feared. Do they... Do they all know that this group is mutants and that one isn't? It just doesn't make any sense. And putting the X-Men off on their own, both in the comics and in the movies, just works better as a concept for me. So we're pretty much on the same page, signed Gene. And Gene, I'm sorry to take this opportunity to disagree with you so drastically, and God knows so so publicly, but I, I really did want to throw this out there that it actually makes more sense to me now than it used to but again i'm not telling you you're right in fact i'm telling you you know what you're probably you're you're probably right and i'm wrong but i'm not telling you that you're wrong that's for sure it's just that i found a way that i found a way of analyzing this in a way that makes sense to me and so everybody else your actual mileage may vary but i can kind of i can kind of see it a little bit better now again not saying it's perfect but i can kind of see it now You know, and I guess since we're on the subject, I can see this a hell of a lot easier than I can see C.C. Beck's, the original Captain Marvel, being part of the DC universe. I mean, I'm just, I'm to the point where I've decided I'm never really going to be at peace with Superman and Captain Marvel breathing the same air as one another. But maybe that's a different topic for a different day. Either way, Gene... I want you to understand that I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, write in like this. I always love hearing from you. I always like uh, your, your your points of view, especially considering that they're coming from, especially with Marvel comics, I would say a bit more of a learned perspective than anything that I'm able to muster on my own. So all in all, man, uh, like I said, I just really appreciate you taking the time to, to write in. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate your friendship. I appreciate everything about you, man. I've always thought you're you're a cool guy. And um, I make I make no real secret of that. So anyway, so I think that's pretty much it for me for this week. So uh, as it goes for next week, I've got some ideas on what I'm going to be doing, but I haven't really set anything in stone yet. And so 
for that reason, I don't think I want to make any official pronouncements about what next week's episode is going to be. Or for that matter, if there's even going to be an episode next week, because who knows, maybe I'm going to want to take a week off. Uh, That happens, but either way, I think that's pretty much it for me for this week, so bye everybody, I will see you next week. I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And Just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy.
Hey everybody, Magnus here. In 1992, seven men disrupted the comic book industry. And it was awesome. It's hard to find a comic book publisher that launched with more anticipation, excitement, and hype than Image Comics did. Now me, I love Image Comics. So much, in fact, that beginning in March of 2020, I'm embarking upon a brand new epic mega-series. These seven men are disrupting the comic book industry. I'm taking a fond look back at a handful of early image titles. What was good? What was bad? What were some missed opportunities? Well, things couldn't have been too horrible because those comics sold millions and millions of copies. So. Join in on the fun with me and take a fond look back at the comics of yesteryear. These seven men are disrupting the comic book industry. A Trennis Magnus Punches Reality mega series beginning in March of 2020. Only at 2TrueFreaks.com.